Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, glad to have you all here uh, tonight as we uh, remember and celebrate, especially uh, the death of Christ. We, we do it as believers all the time. Uh, it's a special evening, though, to be sure. Uh, I'm glad to have you guys here. Whether you're a part of our church or just visiting uh, or you're traveling here, whatever the case may be, we're uh, glad you guys are, are with us. Um, but, uh, but, but as I was saying, uh, such an important day on the, the Christian calendar, and yet uh, every day is really Good Friday uh, for us, or it should be, at least for Christians uh, who profess uh, Christ and, and trust in his work on the cross to deliver us from our, our sins. Uh, but the Bible, interestingly enough, doesn't really instruct us to keep on a holiday level uh, Good Friday, to observe it once a year or anything thing like that, but it does tell us over and over again, it instructs us actually to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world every day. Uh, that is uh, basic Christian living type stuff there. So uh, not seeing then Christianity as the door to the faith that we kind of pass through, the cross rather, as uh, the door to the faith that we pass through and kind of leave behind, but rather uh, more like the sun of the solar system. So we, we see it as this centralizing thing that all the planets of our spiritual life and, and everything that we kind of say and do is, um, is centralized around and orbits uh, around. So... Uh, we're going to look at uh, Luke 23, 32 to 43 tonight, so if you have a phone or app or something or a Bible, go ahead and turn there. Uh, we're going to skip a few verses here tonight for the sake of uh, time and just kind of condensing this a little bit, but basically uh, Luke 23, 32 uh, to uh, 43, and we're picking up where it says that Jesus has been crucified, but he's not alone. Uh, Luke has this uh, particular account uh, of the crucifixion where we see that he's crucified with others. He's flanked by two criminals who are dying justly for their crimes. And what's fascinating is that they talk to Christ. They, they have a conversation kind of with each other about Jesus. And also Jesus talks to uh, one of them, the faithful one, which we'll talk about here in a second. But these two criminals represent two very different perspectives on his death. And all along we learn a ton about what his death means and then uh, kind of by uh, definition also what it doesn't mean. So what the gospel is, what it isn't, what his death really is, and how to be saved, and, um, and also, as we'll see here in a second, how not to really muddy the waters, how not to overcomplicate the idea of salvation and what Christ is doing for us on the cross. So let's start by reading Luke 22, 32 to 33, and then skipping down 39 to 43. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. One of the criminals who were, who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today, you'll be with me in paradise. All right, so uh, really, I, I think just an astonishing exchange here between the Son of God and these nameless criminals. Uh, death And death and suffering and trial will do this to us sometimes, like, like smelling salts. It'll wake us up to what our true problem is, to the fact that we're helpless that death is unavoidable, and that we just need a savior. When I uh, preach at funerals, I, I feel like I'm being listened to in a very special way. Uh, not necessarily more, 
uh, maybe more, uh, but a very special way. Uh, and I think there's a, there's a bit of that going on here. Though, though as we see, not everyone's response to Jesus is favorable. Even in these circumstances, suffering can elicit hatred towards God or derision towards him, or it can elicit desperation and prayer before him. And these two criminals represent both sides beautifully. And so three things here tonight that we learn, there's probably a there's ton more to say for sure, but three big things we learn about the gospel and about theology and about salvation uh, in different capacities, you'll see uh, that we learn from this exchange that Jesus has with this one faithful criminal, but also the exchange that you see between the two criminals as well, including the one, uh, of course, who's rejecting him. So The first is, Jesus' death confronts us. Uh, it, it demands that we do something with it. Uh, so when I say confront, I don't mean in a bullying kind of way, not in a bad way, but in a, in a good way, in a way that I think invites a response uh, graciously. And so it, it could be a con- confrontation way that, you know, kind of leads us to trip up over our good works or over ourselves or any kind of ladder climbing endeavors uh, in terms of um, how we're trying to approach God, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, but it, in general, does do this. And you see it here with the criminals. Jesus' death demands a response. When we stare at this innocent Christ or Messiah who's dying, we've got to do something with that. And these criminals are both doing it uh, to differing ends. And so, the, and so these two men then are responding not just to the man, it's really important to see this, but to his death. An innocent Messiah or Christ or King is suffering in a horrible manner on this cross for these six hours, and, and he's dying, and they're trying to reconcile that in their mind. And so one of the the, the maxims here is his death is not circumstantial, but it's the occasion for rejection and belief. So on the one hand, death trips up somebody, and they reject him because he's dying in this manner. But on the other hand, the death becomes the occasion for belief. And not just for belief, but for salvation and promised paradise and eternal life. So the one then wants him to bypass his death, the first criminal, the unfaithful one, the one who's deriding him, one wants him to bypass his death and, and rails at him, it says, for it. But the other wants salvation through his death. He says, the latter one, he has done nothing wrong to the other criminal. But instead of railing at injustice, he accepts it and he trusts in Jesus through it. Now he's not connecting all the, the- theological dots here necessarily. In fact, we know he's not. I'll talk a little bit more about that too tonight. But he's still an example of a Christian who seeks Christ through his death, not apart from it. There's no such thing as a crossless Christianity. Though the first criminal seeks that kind of selfish, hopeless religion, uh, there's no such thing as a crossless Christianity. And we see that here with this exchange. Actually, elsewhere in the Bible, some of you guys know this, uh, this story or this figure, but Peter one of Jesus' 12 disciples and closest friends and his followers, Peter the disciple, is another example of a guy who tries many times to derail Jesus from this trajectory towards death that he's taking and that he's walking. There's one point in uh, Matthew 16 where he actually rebukes Jesus when Jesus starts to talk about how it's necessary that he must die. It's necessary that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer at the hands of Gentiles. And it's necessary that he must be raised from the dead three days later. It says Peter pulls him aside and rebukes him and says that this must not happen to you. Basically saying, I will prevent this from happening. I won't allow it. Don't worry, Jesus, I've got it. I'll protect you. And later also uh, at his arrest 
in um, places like John 18. At other points, during his arrest, when Jesus is being led away, Peter's the guy who pulls a sword out and starts to fight the soldiers, uh, actually cutting the ear off of one of them, and Jesus heals them and, and that whole story. So, but, but in both of these instances and more, Jesus is really careful to stop both words and deeds that seek to prevent his death. He's bent on going to Jerusalem. He's bent on his death. And when people get in his way, when people seek to sway, when people seek to pursue a crossless form of Christianity, as if there was such a thing, and there isn't, but a crossless form, a, a version of the faith that doesn't lead to his death, Jesus stops them. He actually calls Peter Satan. Get behind me, Satan, or adversary, or one who would tempt me away from my true mission, why I came. And so the, the one criminal here, the, the first one, misunderstands all of this, the, the first guy, the first thief. But his death must occur, the scriptures are saying. And Jesus is saying this too in many and various ways. The gospel writers say this, that his, Jesus says this himself, his death must occur. And actually, if you twist his words around, the first criminal, when he said, save yourself, Jesus, and us. But what's the problem with that? If he saves himself, we're not saved. If Jesus saves himself from the cross, if Jesus does not die, there's no hope for sinners who are bent on death, who are hell-bent ourselves. There's no hope. The only way for us to be saved is if Jesus gives up his life and gives up the prospect of being saved and bypassing that death. So this is the Christian hope. Christ's death is not a circumstance alone. It's the very power of God to save us from our sins and the result of sin, which is death. So as Christians then, we're, we're not ashamed of his death. We don't give second-class status to it in our theology, but we centralize it. And we don't sanitize it. The reality is, what the gospel says, is that God's son had his back shred open with a flagellum to partially expose some of his organs. And then he was nailed to a cross to slowly suffocate over a six-hour period. That happened for you. That happened for us. That happened for sinners. What are you going to do with that? How is that confronting you? As, as you stare at it like a, like a thief and a criminal, uh, flanking Christ, how, how do you respond? How do you reconcile it? As the prophets say, by his stripes or by his wounds, we are healed. Uh, the scriptures don't just talk about this in the New Testament, but in the Old, as it's being predicted and seen from afar, hundreds of years before it happened, this, this servant, so-called suffering servant of God, Isaiah 53, as God predicts this through the prophet Isaiah, he says, a time is coming where I will send my servant. He will die. He will be striped. He will be nailed to a tree, and he will suffer. But by his sufferings and his stripes, you will be healed. Classic substitution. One criminal, back in Luke 23, one criminal saw a glimpse of that reality in Jesus. The other did not. Second thing here uh, tonight is a perfect theology is not required to be saved. I, I said before, this guy, the second guy, the faithful criminal, clearly isn't connecting all the theological dots here, but he's also clearly saved. This nameless criminal, who likely knew very little about Jesus, still knew enough. It's very encouraging. 
for all of us, whether we know a lot about theology or not, all of us have per, imperfect theology. No one has perfect uh, systematized beliefs about major doctrines or minors. That's very encouraging. And, and here's his profession of faith. So going back to Luke 23, here's what he says. The moment he becomes a Christian, this is what he says. Remember me, Jesus. That's his profession. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And attached to that profession is some degree of a substitutionary idea, like we talked about before, because he's saying to the other criminal, he's done nothing wrong, and yet he's dying. But he doesn't ask Jesus to come off that cross. He sees some injustice, but trusts in God somehow through it, and asks instead for God to somehow use that. Asks instead for him to be, himself to be forgiven from his sins and to enter into glory and to be with Jesus uh, on the other side of this experience. So on, on, on one sense, it's remember me, Jesus. On another sense, it's remember me and, and attached to that as to some kind of substitutionary idea, believing that God is going to use this death somehow. And yet attached to that is some kind of, even in an infantile state, some kind of resurrection hope. So when he says... When you come into your kingdom, Jesus, remember me. Uh, for, for a first century Palestinian, that's not just hope in a heavenly future. That, that's hope in a very earthly, heaven on earthly future, where God would set up his kingdom here, where he would come back and glorify everything that fell, that he made good and beautiful and perfect in the beginning. Things like mountains and trees and streams and seasons and all of that. Uh, he, he's going to perfect it and set up his kingdom here. And so for the, the thief to say, when, when you come into your kingdom, he's, he's getting a glimpse of hope there. He's, it's a suggestion that he believes. Like the Old Testament saints before him believed that somehow God could undo this problem of death. Infantile, yeah. Connecting all the dots, for sure not. But a glimpse, uh, nonetheless, and sufficient uh, to, be, to be saved. But, but that's about it. Basically, remember me, Jesus. I, I trust somehow God's going to use this, going to work through this injustice to bring me, bring me hope and life and, and a future. But that's about it. So sufficient gospel theology then, or a theology that saves a person, is both wide and narrow. And I think the who is more important than the exact how. Though, though the how is very important. But the who is more important than the exact how. So, it, so it's wide in that it's not knowledge about particulars that saves a person, but the man Christ Jesus himself and what he's doing for us on the cross. And so true Christians can disagree on the finer aspects of doctrine, but agree on the main aspects. So it's wide. But it's narrow in that, even as I just said that, it's narrow in that salvation is still laser-pointed right on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Laser-pointed. There's no other way. No other name under heaven by which humankind can be saved, Acts 4.12 says. No other name. John 14.6, the only way to get to God, Jesus says, is through me. I am the way, the way. No one gets to the Father except through his true, chosen, ultimate intermediary, his son, Jesus Christ, and ultimately what he does for us on, on the cross and erasing our sin, making a way back. So it's narrow then is it, in that it's still laser-pointed right on him. Uh, there's, there's no other way. Salvation comes through his name alone. And uh, it's not a general idea of God. So you know, we can have general ideas about God, but that's not sufficient. 
so, so it's narrow. It's very wide. It's very inclusive. It's a wide net. This guy does not understand a lot. But he, he understands that the name Jesus is required to profess. He understands that calling out on God's son is necessary, which is to call, about, call out on God himself, to say, save me from my sins. So what we can then just extrapolate from that, there are many things, but to put a cap on this one, don't think you have to understand all theological mysteries here before you become a Christian. The criminal's not. Or even to stay a Christian, which is very freeing for Christians. When God reveals to us the door of salvation, it looks like his son on a cross. It's significant, I think, that Jesus doesn't hand the criminal a thousand-page systematic theology text and say, read this, you know, after he professes his name. Get ready for the test later or something. Uh, that's extremely significant. And, and we love theology here. We're theology heads. We're Bible nerds. Right? Well, I am. I shouldn't speak for It's fine if you're not, but it's just, a lot of us are. We, we, love, we love this book. It's complex. It's deep. It's, it's you know, it's, it's, it, we can comprehend it because it's been revealed and God's spirit helps us to, to get the, the, the generals and also the finer aspects, but it's not required. Don't require more than what the Bible does is the point. Don't require more than Jesus does, the Son of God himself. Don't lump on something that Jesus himself is not lumping onto it. Don't put a yoke over your neck that you can't bear. Uh, Don't add, uh, but simply receive Jesus Christ and him crucified alone as the way to be saved. And third here, uh, moral goodness is not required either. This cannot be overstated. Belief is enough. Belief is enough. And clearly here, right, Jesus is not asking the criminal, the the faithful one, after he says, remember me, he's not asking him to do anything. Uh, And and he's not even giving him a rundown of all the good and bad deeds he's ever done, like, you know, like he's judging and weighing them on the scales and and then saying, it's close, but you're good, or something like that. Like, it's not not at all what's happening here, right? His response is, after the remember me, Jesus, is simply, t- truly, I say to you, and, and God never lies. He never goes back on his word. He always follows through. Truly, I say to you, today, you will be with me, which, by the way, is the essence of salvation, to be with God. Paradise without God is hell. Paradise with God is paradise. So, today, you'll be with me in, in paradise. So, clearly, that's true here. Moral goodness is not required either. And isn't it striking here as well uh, that w- the one person that's kind of getting it, you know, when Jesus, is, when Jesus here is dying on the cross and there's these criminals here, there are centurions around, there's this mob essentially around during the time, but all of his friends flee. The one person that kind of gets it is a criminal. This nameless criminal, this thief, who's literally dying for his sins in a just way, the criminal is. And where are all the sages? Where are all the moralists? Where are the priests? Where are the religionists? Where are the ones that knew the Old Testament supposedly so well and who are waiting for the Messiah? Where are they? No one's at the cross saying, I knew this was going to happen. Everyone's rejecting him. He's completely alone. And yet there's this one guy who's being crucified, who's a criminal, an outcast, who's put to open shame, probably naked on this cross, without a hope in the world. Because he's moments away from death. He kind of gets it. 
You know, that's what's what I love about the Gospels is you see it's, it's the good people that crucified Jesus. The priests put him up on the cross. The criminal understands and is saved. And that, that's that upside-down nature that should trip us up, trip us up, wreck us in our efforts at self-justifying or defending ourselves or any kind of religion effort, religious effort. Belief's enough here. Not morality, but the man Christ, who all, all he asks us to do, and we're seeing this image here, is believe and call upon his name and believe that he's the one erasing his sins. So we, we know that Jesus isn't actually asking him for his good and bad deeds, revealing those things to him and weighing them because he is actually in this moment dying for this criminal sins. He's the one erasing them. It would be contradictory for Jesus to, to whip out these scales and, and weigh them and judge him based on what he's done because in this very moment, he's the one doing the atonement, doing the atoning work. And this is true for Christians and for people for all time as well. At any point in their life, for all of us in this room, belief is enough. This is what this is saying. Belief really is enough. Now, obviously, if the criminal somehow survived the cross, his life would and should look different on the other side of his conversion. Saying it's not about works is not the same thing as saying you're free to do bad stuff now. That's an abuse of, of grace, but... It's also not true to say that Jesus gave this guy special treatment and was okay with a simpler, watered-down gospel because he was literally dying. We can't say that either. It's always, every day true that it's always all about grace. It's about the grace of God shown to us through his Son and belief in that grace that saves a person. Every day. Moral goodness is not required. In fact, morality wrongly pursued can keep us from God as well, like it did for the priests here, who were very moral. Uh, their, their moralness, their goodness, were, was keeping them from the Savior. Uh, not their bad deeds alone, that, that were, those were as well, uh, but their goodness was uh, too. Christ himself is the answer. Not a kind of humanitarian goodness or moralistic politeness that's void of the Spirit. Jesus, not his teachings, his teachings point to the cross anyway. This moment right here. It, it, it all comes down to this. What do we do with the man on the cross? Do we believe? Do we accept his work? Or do we fight like Peter and say, Jesus, you will never die. I will fight for you. Or do we put the sword in its sheath and say, God, God, God will fight for me. I accept it. And the way he's fighting for me is by sending his son to die for me and to slay the, the worst of dragons and, and to resolve the worst of my nightmares and to ease the worst of my pains and to take away the worst of my sins. There's a huge difference there. We pull the sword out and prevent the death. Are we ashamed of the death? Do we seek a Christianity that's void of the cross? Or do we centralize and put the sword away and say, no, God promised to fight for me. Who am I to fight for him? What, what can I give God that he should repay me? The Bible itself asks that. He can never be repaid. He's not asking to. He's loving us. He's coming to our rescue. He's dying this kind of death because he loves us. And so 1 Corinthians 1.18 here, a couple final words in this verse. Uh, this is the Apostle Paul speaking to the Corinthian church. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What this is saying is the cross is foolishness to the world. 
It's foolish because it subverts all of our philosophies and our attempts at proving ourselves and, as I said before, climbing moralistic ladders. It destroys the wisdom of the wise, it says elsewhere in chapter 1, because salvation's not something we study really hard to understand. It's rather revealed to us in the form of a bloodied Savior dying a shameful death among criminals. So that children and criminals understand it, but some seminary professors miss it. This is the beautiful mystery of the gospel. It's, it, it is missed by the smartest and accepted by the simplest because it's by grace. If it were by strength or works, then the smartest would accept it and the simplest would miss it. If it was about worldly knowledge, then only the smartest would get in, but it's not. It destroys the wisdom of the wise. It's saying you can't know your way into the kingdom. You can't know your way or philosophize your way in. The cross says God had to come our way because we couldn't get to him. The cross says that, that God is showing us what it means to be saved. He's demonstrating, revealing what it means to be saved. And when we look at the cross, we, we, can't, we can't look at ourselves and say we're, we're good enough or just that we're good at all. But we can say that we're loved because God says we're loved. And God says the cross happened because we're loved. Sinful but loved. That's the paradox. That's the paradox of Good Friday and any Friday. Uh, not, not good and getting in with moral effort, but, but sinful and loved to the point of death and back on, on the cross. For us who are being saved, it's the power of God. But for those who are rejecting it, it is, it is foolishness. And so my, my final invitation for my, just for, my, for myself and all you guys tonight is, like the criminal today, look at the man on the cross and in your mess and in your imperfect theology, pray, God save me. Pray that he, that, that he will save you from your worst nightmares and, and your deepest, darkest sins, and he will. He will say to you that the same thing he says to the criminal. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. At the end of your life, Today, in a very real practical sense, you'll be free. You'll be with him. He'll be in you. And you'll have paradise with him. But on that last day, you'll be with him in paradise as well as we await the new earth upon his return. So like the criminal, look upon the man on the cross and consider what that means for your life. Let me pray. God, thank you uh, so much for this Good Friday. It is indeed a good day uh, where you remember so much, so much about you, so much injustice that was used for justice, for good. So much pain that was used for our comfort. So much darkness that was used that we might walk in the light. God, so help us to be saved today. Some of us may be in the room for the first time by believing the gospel and some of us for the thousandth time by believing the gospel. It's always about grace. Uh, the man on the cross knew that. He saw that. We see that through that exchange, Jesus, that you had with him. But asking you to remember us, to know us, to really love us through your death. That's true. We can ask that though. God, love us. Help us to rest in your love, to know that you deeply love us, to death and back, to hell and back, to know that, to rest in that, and to believe in it, to receive grace, not work for it. To not connect all the dots or feel like we have to, but simply to, to know the basics and uh, keep that as our mantra throughout our life. So, God, help us to respond now in communion and song and uh, Pray for our weekend as well. Uh, may it be a party, a celebration of the fact that our God has died for our sins 
And now, praise be to God, he's alive. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you.